Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. This is episode number 27. And if it's the first time you're joining us, we want you to know that we have created this podcast with one aim. We're here to help provide you with the critical tools, skills, and strategies you need to protect your children and family and to prepare them for a safe, happy, and meaningful future. Now, in the last episode, we had a terrific conversation with Emmy Award-nominated filmmaker Tiffany Schlain. Tiffany is the founder of Character Day and the Webby Awards, and she's the author of the new book, 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week. Now, in this episode, we're very pleased to be joined by a wonderful guest who we know is going to offer all of us some fascinating and profound insights and advice. Dr. Dan Siegel is a clinical professor at the UCLA School of Medicine, and he's the executive director of the Mindsight Institute. He's a New York Times bestselling author whose many books include Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, and Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence, as well as Parenting from the Inside Out with Mary Hartzell and The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, The Yes Brain, and The Power of Showing Up with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. And you can hear our conversation with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson in episode 25. So Dan, welcome to Live Above the Noise. We've really been looking forward to this conversation. Great to be here, Wayne. It's a pleasure. So, Dan, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There is uncertainty everywhere. It seems like our reserves are being drained. We're being asked to face anxiety and problems that we haven't had to before and issues. How can we be resilient in the face of this? And also, in one of the workshops that I saw that you had done, you had a fantastic story about going to Namibia, about talking to a group in front of a fire. They were in the midst of drought and famine and disease, and they had an interesting take on life. And I'm wondering if you could just tell that story, because I think it has something to do with today. Absolutely. There was a time years ago when we went to Namibia, a country on the west coast of Africa in the south, because in Namibia, the genetic studies had shown that tribes that are there now look like they are related to those individuals that were the ancestors for all of us on the planet. So we thought it would be really interesting to ask those individuals if they had language that used what we call, you know, mindsight principles. The idea that is that there's an inner life of the mind that includes your emotions, your memory, your attention, what's in your awareness, what's your intention. And there was a lot of reason to believe that this ability to see the mind, what we call mind sight, might be one of the most crucial evolutionary acquisitions to make us the unique humans that we are. We are humans in many, many ways. We tell stories, which seems to be unique to us. One very special aspect of being human is we have something called alloparenting, which is how we are raised by more than just the mother. 
So if you have a dog or you raise mice or something, you know, like we have here in this house, you know, we, we see that, you know, most mammals, it's the birth mother that takes care of those babies, you know, but in humans, it's different. In humans, we seek the care of other adults and other individuals in our community, in our village, to actually take care of, protect, and nurture our young. So this is a very important thing. It's called alloparenting. And Sarah Hurdy, H-R-D-Y, she writes a lot about it in a beautiful book called Mothers and Others. Well, this ability to give your young the most important resource you have genetically and from an evolutionary point of view, that's a key moment, means that we have to know that the person we're giving this child to, this baby to, this infant, so dependent on an attachment figure, and now we're handing it over to someone who you know, may not be directly related, not the sperm or egg donor, but another person. We have to read the signals of another person to know what's their intention. Is it a good intention or not a good intention? What's the focus of their attention? Will they be attending to our baby or not? And what's in their awareness? Are they going to be filled with lots of other things? Or are they going to have a priority for this child they're going to be given the care of? So that ability to see the signals of someone and then know their mind as best we can to have what you might call empathy, or even if it's for suffering, for compassion, you know, requires a perceptual ability that you know, I simply call mind sight. Mm -hmm. Others might call it, you know, mind mindedness or psychological mindedness or reflective function or mentalization or theory of mind. There's lots of different scientific terms in the field I work in. We just use the phrase mind sight for sight, seeing, perceiving, and mind meaning the inner subjective life. So I say all that because we were on this journey to see if the people in Namibia, these different tribes had mind sight language. And indeed they did. And that was a really exciting finding to see that in their original language that they have now, that mindsight was a fully present part of their communities. Now, at night one evening, I reflected with them that I noticed that even though there was a drought, wasn't any water around, and even though there was a famine, there was a real scarcity of food, and even though there were diseases going through the villages that were very difficult to treat, like tuberculosis, for example, they seemed really happy, which, you know, as a physician was like, wow, their basic biological needs are being threatened. And yet emotionally, they seemed really content and happy. I mean, so around the fire, you know, we were just hanging out and I asked the, the translator to ask the villager a question, you know, if his people were in fact happy because they seemed happy. And he said, yes, they were happy. And when I asked him why, this is all through the translator, the villager said, my people are happy because we belong. We belong to one another in our community and we belong to earth. Wow. And then there was this silence and I was just filled with this just huge emotion that swept over me. And mm. he looked at me and then looked at the translator and asked the translator to ask me if in America we're happy and if we belong. And I couldn't really answer yes to either question. Mm. On a global way, in terms of our nation, the United States of America, very ununited states, this idea of belonging being the deep source of happiness is confirmed by recent science that shows your connections to a social network of support, a community, 
is in fact the best predictor of four factors that we all would want in our lives. Your medical health, how healthy your body is, your mental health, how clear thinking you are, how your emotion and mood is, how long you live, what's called longevity, and even how happy you are. So this is kind of an amazing moment, I think, in our human evolution where we've developed these modern cultural practices like huge cities without much to support our interpersonal connections or even our connection with nature. And like this villager powerfully said with such wisdom, his people, despite the threats to what we in modern culture would say are the essentials, you know, fight off disease and have food and water and all this kind of stuff, they could still find meaning in their lives through connection and belonging. Yes. So it's that experience that sits with me from that trip to Namibia. And, you know, when I think about that, I think about what we can do in modern culture to bring more belonging into our world. It was such a powerful story. And what strikes me is our podcast is Live Above the Noise. And we define noise as distraction, distortion, disruption, and overload. None of those things seem to go with belonging, do they? No, I think the absence of belonging in modern culture is the kind of busyness, noise, it's the distractions. Even if you think about the way the system is structured to divide us, makes income for social media. Mm -hmm. You know, it drives you to be compelled to get on your devices because there's so much division. And it's, it's probably worth just quickly summarizing that we evolved, probably if you look at primate scientists, you know, scientists who study apes and monkeys, we probably had for about 50 million years. So at least 45 million years before humans were around, we evolved to make distinctions between who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group. And unfortunately, this is a really long evolutionary history genetically determined. So then you evolve into humans. Some people would say four and a half million years ago. Some people would say a few hundred thousand years ago, depending on how you want to define being human. But whatever it is, it's a lot shorter than 50 million years. So we inherit this long-time primate history of in-group, out-group distinction. We then get this alloparenting business where we read the minds of others and we start figuring out, well, are you someone I can trust or not? Very simply put, the, the human mind constructs its perception of reality by categories, concepts, and now we have linguistic symbols, at least in the last probably 5,000 years. So now you've got these words that start influencing the transfer of information within culture, and other animals have culture too. They teach things to their young and it gets passed on through learning. Mm -hmm. But we have a very intricate culture because of language, and we can embed these things in the stories we tell each other, in the books ultimately, when we took these words we were developing and put them down on you know, smashed pieces of wood called paper, we were able to then transmit this across generations. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history, for example, of the way civilization in modern times developed, this in-group, out-group distinction from our primate history then shaped the way we categorized who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group. And then we had these concepts like, for example, about 
well, I guess now it'd be about 600 years ago in Portugal, it looks like the first notion of race in the sense of you're black or you're white uh, was created. And it was in a way to justify slavery of people from Africa, even though slaves had come from all skin colors and all walks of life. You know, even the word slave comes from the term Slavic, you know, so it wasn't just black people who were enslaved. But in Portugal, when when intentional trips were taken to Africa to kidnap people and steal them and murder them and basically disempower them and dehumanize them, that was the origin of the black-white distinction. And so what does our background as humans teach us that we need to do in the face of all of these challenges that are happening right now? I think what is really required of us at this moment in history is to develop beyond the genetically inherited propensities to absorb cultural messages like in-group, out-group distinctions, to work against what unfortunately is a trend in modern times, uh, which is to overly separate humanity from nature Mm -hmm. so that we forget that we are a fundamental part of Mother Earth, that we're all siblings of Mother Earth, right? So we, we get this kind of, I don't want to say full of ourselves, but we're kind of full of ourselves like we think humans are better yeah. or humans are separate. And you could call this the modern illusion of the separate self that E.O. Wilson, the sociobiologist, talks about that because we relied on sight and hearing primarily, it gave us a perceptual mistake, which is called an illusion of separation from nature. And as Wilson says in a book called The Meaning of Human Existence, that when we were few in number, that perceptual illusion of we're better and we're separate, it didn't make that big a difference. But when we grew to now seven toward nine billion people, then it makes a big difference when you treat Earth like it's just a trash can. So that's the first part of resilience is that we have to wake up to what Wilson would call the perceptual mistake or illusion. Einstein actually called it even more than a perceptual error. He called it a psychotic belief, which in formal terms and the term he used was delusion. Mm. So a delusion is a psychotic belief. It's a belief that is completely inconsistent with reality. And what Einstein said was the big challenge ahead of us is that humanity has this delusion, an optical delusion of consciousness is what he said, that we are separate from the rest, the rest of nature, the rest of the universe. Now, whether you call this a delusion, a psychotic belief, or an illusion, a false perception, either way, what are we going to do? Because we're not thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, This is the deal. So now you say, okay, That's rock bottom, right? It's rock bottom that we have, for various reasons we can get into, an error in our perception, an error in our belief that we're separate, that then shapes an entire human culture. And then the invitation is to wake up from the madness. And I think that's what, in a way, the pandemic is an opportunity to say as much lives and livelihoods are being lost that this is an actually disruption in the way human beings are comporting themselves on earth to say, all right, let's deal with the virus for sure. 
as individual families, let's find resilience, which we can talk about. And then how do we as a human family actually develop resilience to approach life on earth in a very different way than we've been living it? Dan, how do you see the positive side of the pandemic? What's going to be coming out of this as it recedes? And some of the things that are going on with separation change, what do you think is the upside from a learning perspective? From a learning perspective, I think the first step is to honor the grieving that needs to go on. And that grieving has many levels. One is the grief that, you know, many lives are being lost and the the unemployment that's happening, the, the disruption in the economy and the systems that support people's basic needs are really being violated. That's a big, big grieving process we need to initiate and support. The second kind of grief is that when you look at who are the most vulnerable, it's not just the people who are older, people with illnesses, but it's people of color, people who've been marginalized, and at least in North America, in the United States, you see this horrible, horrible way in which people already are marginalized from an economic point of view and from a discrimination point of view with structural racism being embedded in the way the United States, its 400-year history, has been built on the backs of slaves. And you see that the worst genocide that's ever been imposed on humanity was done by Europeans on native peoples of North America. You take a deep breath and you go, whoa, the modern world is emulating itself on the United States, which is built on in-group, out-group distinctions that are beyond just logic. You have to understand it as the way the brain is vulnerable to dehumanizing people who are not like them. And then you see the way this you know, United States individualistic approach is actually leading the way on the planet for destroying Earth. So then you take a deep breath and you go, those aren't so good. And I'll say this as a United States citizen, you're right. Those are not so good. So why is everyone trying to copy the U.S.? So then you go, wow, it looks so great because it's so much money and so much TV shows. And and you go, okay, 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 we understand. And now the virus has caused a pause. Mm -hmm. So while we honor the loss of lives and livelihood and the really unfair way in which the suffering is being distributed from this virus, we then say, okay, what are we going to do as we move past the personal experience of this planetary pandemic. We have this group called PEP, P-E-P-P, which started as the personal experience to build resilience as we deal with the planetary pandemic. But now as it's grown and grown and grown, we've transformed that acronym into the personal exploration of planetary possibility. And Mm, one of those possibilities, right, is this notion that to really build resilience for families, for the individuals within those families, for setting young people, whether they're children or adolescents, up to face this world that's going to be very different, then we want to explore what the possibilities are. And one of those possibilities is to realize that the view of the separate self, whether it's from E.O. Wilson's view of an illusion or from Einstein's view of a delusion, that view of a separate self is wrong. And yet it's embedded in the way we raise children as parents. It's embedded in how we handle kids in schools. It's embedded in how science approaches what the mind is. It's embedded in our society. 
So all these ways you get a message of a separate self are basically, to put it in a really gentle way, we would say misleading. <laughs> to put it in a little firmer way, you might say it's mistaken. And to put it in an even firmer way, you would say it's a lie. And if you want to go all the way out, you would call it a lethal lie. Hmm. And why is it a lethal lie? Because as long as we continue to teach young people in families as parents, that who the self is, is in that body alone. This is the separate self, the solo self. As long as we continue to do that, and you go, of course it's there. But as long as we continue to do this thing that you would say, of course it's there, we're going to actually make our children miserable individually. We'll make their relationships threatened and we'll make their future incredibly foreshortened because if you just look at how climate change is being constructed by this view of a separate self, then we can understand that what we need to do is bust the lethal lie of the separate self. And I am excited about how this moment of human evolution, cultural evolution, can actually move beyond genetic evolution and get to awakening humanity to the reality of interconnection so that we as individuals, yes, can hold on to a me, but what we like to say is your identity of a self is equally a we. So me plus we equals we. And we is the idea that I think can help us move forward in a resilient, coherent, generative way into the future. This idea of interconnectedness that you're talking about it may have been the same workshop or seminar that you were doing with the Namibia story. You said something that really struck me, that people sometimes see relationships as being the icing on the cake. And you said relationships are not the icing on the cake. They are the cake. And from what you're saying here, one to live above the noise, you have to realize that the place that saves you from the noise is in your personal relationships and your relationships, obviously, with the world and, and the planet, etc. Initially, you know, I would joke and say, yeah, yeah, it's not the icing on the cake, it's the cake. Now I would say it's not even the cake, you know, it's not the dessert, it's the main meal. <laughs> and uh, the research would support that notion. But the, here's the challenge, is that we're raised in a modern society with linguistic symbols, like, let's say the word self, or when you say the word I or me or something like that, or you say your name, in my case, Dan, or my parents used to call me Danny. That has the feeling of a noun. And a noun is like an entity. It's like a thing you can hold in your hand. In fact, I got a body. This body is Dan. It's Danny. So the issue with the noun approach to treating the self like an entity is that it infers, that is, it suggests, it implies, it has embedded in it this notion that who you are is separate. Now, what's the alternative? Well, then you say, well, what if the self in fact, we're not limited by your skull nor skin. And in fact, we're a relationship, a set of relationships, like your relationship with your family, with your friends, relationship with other humans who are like you, and relationship with other humans who are not like you, your whole human family. And then you go, well, maybe even to other species, species that are not like you. The trees, all living beings, all animals, fungi, plants, all of nature is actually who you are. And your connection as a body to the whole of nature, intra-nature connections, reveal the reality of what's called interconnection. And then you go, well, hold on. Where's the entity in that? And then you go, well, 
It's a relationship. And then you go, but that's more like a verb. Mm. And you go, yeah. And then the languaging we use becomes really important because the word like Dan doesn't have the feeling of a verb, but in fact, it is a verb. It's a verb of deep interconnection with other people and the planet. And it's that languaging that we need to figure out how to put in a different way. So we, in a way, allows you to have the me of being a noun-like entity that has a body, and it gets about 100 years if I'm lucky to live in it. But the we is a verb. It's a relationality that extends beyond the life of the body and extends beyond the physical boundaries of the bodily skin to realize how deeply interconnected we actually are. You know, Dan, I love your definition. The mind is an emergent phenomena of energy flow. And being a developmental psychologist and having had the challenge of trying to figure this out for the last 45 years also, I had the privilege to work in doing mindfulness work maybe 25 or 35 times over the last 40 years in intense intensives. They were four or five days in a row of silence as well as one question, which is basically, who am I? And what I was impressed with the most is the same exact patterns emerged with regard to unpeeling the onion of my own mind and the emergence of unity in diversity and the true experience, the capital T of truth of who I am, always took me three days of intense 12 hours a day work. And the other thing that happened is that other people that I took with me to do this same technique, all of us, after the end of a three-day experience or a four-day experience, you could watch your own personal mind, how it wanted to go back to the earlier layers of ego but the capital T experience was absolutely transformative and in some way totally ineffable. I mean, the experience set me on the ground for four hours weeping. Yeah. That's how mm. intense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rob. I just want to pause for a moment and for everyone to just to soak in, you know, the power of what you're saying and, and Rob, the sharing of this experience of how deeply moving and deeply transformative those reflective insights that you're sharing with us are, you know, is also an invitation to take a deep breath and say, how do we harness the, the power in what you're saying, Rob, so that we can learn from it and grow from it and change from it, not only, and it's crucial that it happens individually, but not only individually, but collectively. And what are some practical steps that can build on these ideas that Rob is suggesting? And I'll give you one, and you know, it's just one approach. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of approaches, but this is one that I think is kind of helpful. When we think about what helps us build resilience. And we begin with a notion that the busyness of modern life makes a kind of hum of distraction that reinforces this series that 
when you think about mental construction, that at the surface is language. So we speak with each other with words. Beneath that are concepts, like the concept that there is a self that's kind of like a noun, and that beneath the concepts are even categories, the way our mind is dividing things up, that we don't even know about these divisions, but we sort of make them automatically, like uh, there's up and there's down and there's left and there's right. It orients us in the world. So it's not that it's bad, but you know we need to be aware that it is a mental construction. And what we're referring to here when we think about resilience is the notion of a category of self that is defined by being a noun-like entity that exists in a body, maybe even especially in the head. And this has been a message in modern culture for about 2,500 years since the time of Hippocrates, reinforced in lots of different ways. But we then have a concept, okay, well, this self is supposed to, um, I'm here to, um, uh, I guess my reason for being alive is... uh, You know, and so you get all these like questions like, okay, if that's the fundamental thing, like there is a noun like self in this body, what is this self doing here? Mm -hmm. You know, and so then you get this interesting set of attempts to answer that question, whether it's in religion or various contemplative practices or culture or in modern culture, the idea of if I get enough stuff, then this separate self will be really happy but then I try to get the stuff, but it's not happy. So then what happens is I've got to get more stuff, but the more stuff didn't do it. So maybe that's not enough stuff. So I keep on getting more and more, trying to get more and more and more and producing more and more and more. And pretty soon there's too many people around that that misguided view that is not present in indigenous cultures, like in Namibia, you know, they didn't say, oh yeah, we're happy because we have so much stuff. But in modern culture, like in the United States, stuff is the king of the realm, you know, and it never gives meaning or connection. And you don't you usually don't go to a graveyard and on the tombstone that says, Joe died so happy he had so much stuff. You you just don't see that. So then you take a deep breath. You go, "Okay, well, that whole path, some people call it a hedonic treadmill, meaning you're trying to get more and more things that never get you anywhere, but you keep on going faster and faster and faster because you think you're not going fast enough. So you take a deep breath and you say, resilience is not built on that noun-like illusion of a separate self, that psychotic belief that Einstein referred to or that Wilson called a perceptual illusion. Instead, what's the path to resilience? So the path to resilience would be a path of truth. And it's so interesting because In the practical ways, I've tried to teach that in the journey that this body's been on, which is called interpersonal neurobiology, you know, there's been a sequence of discoveries from trying to synthesize all the sciences into one framework. One of those was that linking differentiated parts of a system, whether the system is your brain and your head or your body as a whole or two people in a relationship or a parent-child relationship as an example, you know, romance, whatever, you know, people in a classroom, people in a, an organization, people in a nation, people on a planet, even all of living beings, whatever level of system, it turns out that when you differentiate and honor those differences and then link them, connect them without losing the differentiated nature of them, let's call that integration. Integration is where we 
promote well-being. We cultivate harmony. Now, that view was combined with an interesting observation that everybody trying to cultivate change in the world, like let's say parents at home with their kids, or like teachers in school with their students, or therapists with their patients, we're all using consciousness. So then I said to myself, well, that's so interesting. What if you combine those two findings that you could take integration as health, consciousness is needed for change, and then you invited the integration of consciousness? What would that look like? So with my patients, there was a table in the office and we would differentiate the two elements of consciousness from each other. One is if I say good afternoon, you have two things going on there. You hear the sound of good afternoon, or if you're reading it, you'd see the letters good afternoon. And the other is that you would have the knowing we call being aware or awareness or awarenessing. This process of knowing is distinct from that which is known. So the sound of good afternoon is the known, but you knowing I said it is the awareness. Mm -hmm. So we put the awareness in the hub of this wheel. It was a table in our office, but call it a wheel of awareness. And on the rim, you would put all the knowns like, and there are four segments, you know, the energy patterns from outside the body that you pick up through hearing, through sight, through smell, through taste and touch. Those are all energy patterns. So it's nothing magical. It's energy that a physicist or a biologist would study. Then you move over to the interior energy patterns in the body, like the sensations of muscles and bones and your intestines, your respiratory system, your heart. And you develop what's called interoception, which in science we call the sixth sense perception of the interior signals of the body. You then move this metaphoric spoke over to a third segment of the rim where you have mental activities like emotions and thoughts and memories and things like that. And then in an advanced practice, we even bend the spoke around and have people explore the hub of knowing itself. And then we straighten out the spoke, move it over to the fourth segment, which is opening awareness in the hub to a sense of relationships to other people that you know, people you don't know, and then even to all of nature, to all of reality, which we just call the planet, you know, people on the planet. So what was so fascinating about this wheel of awareness practice, as it came to be called, was that people with mild to moderate depression, people with significant amounts of anxiety, people working with post-traumatic stress, and even people facing really difficult new information, like they were given a terminal diagnosis and they didn't have very long to live and they were freaking out about dying. All of those individuals found relief in doing the Wheel of Awareness practice. Oh. And it became just absolutely fascinating and also functional, you know, like useful to say, why was this helping them? And then what happened was I ended up doing it sequentially with people in workshops and we did it with 10,000 people. I recorded the results. Then now I've done it with over 50,000 people in person in the days when you could do that. And then what happened is it became really fascinating that there were universal descriptions of the hub. And the hub, just to highlight that for a moment, was a source of peace. So in terms of cultivating resilience, the more you did the wheel, the more you could access the sense of peace. It was timeless, people would say. It was open. You felt connected to everything. And not only was there interconnection and peace, this open awareness, but there was also a sense of love. And people would cry. Just like we can be aware in different contemplative practices, people might 
find this. This was purely a scientific practice Mm -hmm. that said, if I integrate consciousness, what happens? And it turns out that even if you've never meditated a day in your life, I'll give you two examples. These are two people who never meditated. One was a parliamentarian in a country with a huge amount of tension. They asked me to fly to that country to do the wheel training for all the parliamentarians and then to have them talk about it. And this one parliamentarian didn't want to talk at the discussion time. And he came to me at the break and he pulled me aside and he said, can I tell you why I didn't bring up anything in the group discussion? I said, sure. He goes, you know that part when you bend the spoke around and you focus on the hub? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that part. And he goes, and now he's crying. I've never felt so much love before in my life. I've never felt so much connection to everyone and everything. And now he's crying. Mm. And I said, wow. And then there's a silence. And I said, so you didn't want to share that? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't want to share that because people would have thought I was weak. Mm. I said, well, wow. Well, um, I I understand you didn't want to feel weak. He goes, no, I don't want to look weak. I said, but later I asked him a few beats later, I said, you know, so let me ask you a question. He goes, what's that? I said, When you're making federal policy, are you leaving love out of the reasoning? Mm -hmm. And his eyes got really, really big and he wagged his finger at me and he ran over to his colleagues to talk to them about something. And all I can hope is that that training that those parliamentarians did would let them see that when you drop out of the noise, if you will, the busyness, the distractions of the rim and access the hub of knowing of awareness, pure awareness, which you can do in 25 minutes, even for someone who's never meditated before in their life. And the other story was a Microsoft engineer who just retired, had the exact same experience, felt connected to everyone and everything and realized that the illusion of separation was just getting lost on the rim of the wheel. And that if you could get in touch with that hub, then you'd get in touch with this feeling of interconnection. What I found in doing with these tens of thousands of people is that three threads of a singular reality seem to be present that we aren't usually aware of. One is just open awareness, which you can call presence. Two is interconnection, the reality that everything is interrelated and interconnected and interdependent in this fundamental way you're a part of a system. And the third is love. And that it's this love, this vital force, this interconnection, this awareness that I feel is the deep source of resilience for all of us. Because when you teach young people to get back in touch with that, because they had that when they were young and they lose it when the rim gets developed, teenagers can get access to this and adults can be reminded of it. I think there's incredible hope to realize that you can, yes, live in the noun-like body you have, but you can also live in the verb-like interconnection that is really our loving, interconnected space of being present when we're truly present for one another. And you know, Dan, that's exactly the experience that I go through every time I try to explain this. <laughs> you know, so every time's always coming. You know? Wow. Wow. Hey, Rob, in the second part of the book, Aware, after the beginning where you learn the wheel of awareness practice in this book, and then you get to the deep dive into the science. If the proposal in the book, Aware, is right, then we have the following notion that might help us all. The notion from doing the Wheel of Awareness with so many people and then asking the question, is there a science that helps us 
illuminate why people have these experiences of interconnection, love, and presence, which have the feelings of clarity, of harmony, of, of energy, of joy, of, you know, of this fundamental way where you are a part of this larger whole. And it's an incredible relief from the illusion of separation, from the delusion of separation. So Mm -hmm. in the journey of looking, let's say, at brain science, not much came up that said, oh, yeah, here's a correlation of brain findings with the 10,000-person survey of the wheel. But when I looked at physics and the study of energy, then there was a correlation. And this became really fascinating because while it, it takes a little while to kind of go step by step, the overall summary is, is that in physics, the study of energy is done by a number of areas, but one of those areas is a division of physics called quantum physics. And quanta is basically a unit of energy, like an electron or a photon. And it gets really strange because what scientists have shown, and this was the cover of Scientific American in July 2018, was there is a divide between what's called the quantum realm and the Newtonian or classical physics realm. Mm. And the Newtonian realm is what Sir Isaac Newton studied 350 years ago. Large objects called macrostates, they act like nouns. They act like entities that are separated in time and space. And these nouns have properties that Newton figured out and it still works. So if you drive your Newtonian classical macrostate car, step on the brakes, you know, and stop that car at an intersection. But in the quantum realm, where instead of macro states, there are micro states, like an electron is really small, so we call them micro state. These, and hold on to your hats because these are probability fields, which is weird. These are verbs. These are events, not entities. These are deeply interconnected events. And this interconnection from a classical Newtonian view kind of doesn't make sense. How can all these things be interconnected when they're spatially separated from each other? Or how can they be verbs? Why aren't they nouns? I want to have control over something. Give me some kind of certainty in life. When in fact, in the microstate world, it's probabilities, not absolute certainty. So yes, if you get on an airplane in the future, you want to be on Qantas Airlines that knows it's going to fly, you know, from Seattle to Sydney, and that's going to be fine. You don't want to be on Quantum Airlines that says, you will probably get there, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about this discussion is that after doing a certain kind of work over a certain period of time, I had the personal experience of never, ever speaking about a truth the same way again. And I was absolutely adamant about capital T truth is love. And because the experience is that, that's the capital T. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you drop into this area of probability rather than certainty, it always reminds me of this beautiful quote from an artist on the entryway to the Brooklyn Public Library in New York. And it says simply this, it's a beautiful, beautiful quote. It says, having abandoned the flimsy fantasy of certainty I decided to wander. And this wandering is really how you embrace, I think, what resilience can allow us to be. Because especially in the time of the pandemic, people are facing so much uncertainty. And on the rim of the wheel, we long for certainty. We want things to be like nouns because the brain is an anticipation machine. 
you know, it could make the individual feel safe. It, it could predict what was happening next. And when it couldn't predict what was going to happen next, there was a lot of feeling of danger. So uncertainty for a predicting brain on one level can feel quite threatening. And so we need to realize with the pandemic and all the disruption happening, certainty is being exposed because when we think about the flimsy fantasy of certainty, it means the mind is constructing a narrative, a story that is having a perceptual movie it creates so it can be certain and feel comfortable in life. Mm. And when we drop out of that noun-like certainty and open to the verb-like degrees of probability that we call uncertainty, here's what we come to realize, that the synonym for uncertainty is freedom and possibility. And this is an invitation then to develop resilience by moving into what we would call it in the wheel metaphor, the hub of the wheel. You know, when you look at the physics of it, we have this whole set of reasoning to look at how if energy is the movement from possibility to actuality, which is what physicists say, quantum physicists say that. So then there's this space we call the plane of possibility where all possible things are resting before they transform themselves into probabilities and actualities. Now, that sounds weird. So you got to really sit with it for a while and live with it. But here's the take home message that when we can learn this art, the wheel of awareness is one of many, many, many ways to do it. This is just super direct and science based. So many people find it appealing that you are dropping out of these, what we call plateaus and peaks of increased probabilities as plateaus, like states of mind or belief, and certain peaks, like certain thought patterns or emotions or memories. And you're dropping down beneath those peaks, beneath those plateaus, into this plane of possibility. Now, it is, in physics terms, the formless source of all form. And so you could call it the generator of diversity, the G-O-D. And when you call it that, you realize from a physics point of view, when you drop in there, there is this experience where everything is interconnected. There is this experience of pure awareness. Why that is, I have no idea, but it seems to fit with the physics view of how energy moves from possibility in what's called the quantum vacuum or what Arthur Zions, the quantum physicist, likes to call the sea of potential and how it moves from this, what we call the plane of possibility, up into these plateaus of a state of mind, like I'm a separate self and the particular thoughts that happen, oh, Dan needs this, Dan needs that, whatever, you know, to drop beneath those peaks and beneath those plateaus into the openness of the plane, which is actually where uncertainty rests and freedom and possibility are sitting there waiting for us, I think, as a humanity to find a new way to live more as verbs. And like what we like to say is basically, yes, you have a body that's like a noun that's a me, but you also have a verb-like set of relationships with other people and the planet that's a we, and you don't have to lose either one. Integration is honoring both. So me plus we equals we. Dan, if I'm a parent, how do I get this message to my kids? You know, there's an, a set of studies that I summarize in chapter 10 of the third edition of The Developing Mind that goes through a deep scientific analysis about the development of the mind from birth onward and how there's something called self-construal. And self-construal is a fascinating area of 
study, which basically says that our sense of self is shaped by how our parents interact with us in attachment. It's shaped by how we interact with our peers and our teachers in schools. And it can be shaped even by what's called a priming process that is even immediate input to you in a research setting. And this could also be seen in social media in a social media setting can alter your self-control. So the good news about self-control, how a sense of self is cultivated, is that it's constructed from experience. And the positive side of that is that you as a parent, or you as a teacher, or you as a citizen on earth, can actively engage what we would simply call pervasive leadership, where you are empowered, if you believe in this whole journey of humanity, to say, okay, I'm going to exert my pervasive leadership to remind the body that is the body I was born into, the relationships I have immediately in front of me, my children, my students, my friends, my neighbors, whatever, to live this life, we would say it from the hub of the wheel or the plane of possibility, from this place of interconnection, where number one, you as a parent embrace the reality of interconnection in your heart in your soul, inside of you. Now, that sounds kind of wild for a scientist to say, but what I'm saying, building on E.O. Wilson and Einstein and building on Joanna Macy and many other visionaries who've said, we've had ourselves in the wrong track of separation. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And you as a parent, what you do is you say, okay, but this is what I was taught to believe. Fine. It was a mistake. Just like if you were taught to believe smoking is good, but now you realize it causes cancer. No biggie. Maybe no one was at fault, but it's going to kill you and it's going to kill your children. Okay. So then do you keep on smoking? What if I'm addicted to a separate self? Yeah. Well, you could be addicted to smoking. Get some help. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do some meditation and dissolve this illusion and delusion of the separate self. Okay. So there are steps to release the hold of that addiction of a separate self. Because like any addiction, literally the studies of like social media and the feeling of missing out, all of those are dopamine based. That is a reward circuitry is driven in this relentless way, you know, what's sometimes called the hungry ghost that I keep on trying to fill, 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 but it's actually the wrong journey I'm on. The journey of filling it up with you know, material stuff isn't going to work. So now you say, okay, how do I raise my kids? Let's say I've done the work now because it always starts with ourselves. That's what book I wrote, Parenting from the Inside Out with Mary Hartzell or The Power of Showing Up, you know, with Tina Payne Bryson or Brainstorm, which I wrote by myself for adolescence. All these books are basically for parenting or saying, look, it starts with yourself. Okay, great. What is it about? It's about realizing the reality of interconnection. Yourself is more than your body. Now, you can raise your children to realize their friends, their neighbors, their whole human family, all living beings are a part of who they are. It's not that big a deal. I mean, literally, if you just look at other cultures, Mm -hmm. this is done in other cultures, not in the integrated way we're talking about, more in what's called a collectivistic way, where the individual is not a part of how people are raised. I think we can create a new kind of approach, which is both a me and a we. So not losing me to only have a we, which is found in lots of cultures, especially indigenous cultures, but actually having both me and we. And this is where the we community 
that we are developing, you know, that's growing every day. It grows bigger and bigger. And it started during the pandemic, but it's hopefully going to extend our human evolution in a way that allows us to integrate our lives. Because if you do this as a parent, say, okay, I feel helpless in the pandemic. I feel hopeless in the pandemic. I see the incredible change in the system of economies. I see cultural challenges going on. Oh my God, what is what is the vision I have for how to have hope? And so what I say is that the we approach of an integrated culture, that evolution of humanity, cultural evolution, can actually happen faster than you might ever believe. Just think about a time when you didn't have smartphones. Mm-hmm. That was not so long ago. And now everyone's got their head down on these phones. You know, we can have our heads up with interconnection. And it's a matter of collectively doing this so that the resilience that we want to build individually for our children is not just taking place in a vacuum. It's taking place in a larger cultural relational connection, if you want. Some people would call it a movement. If you just want to call it a shift in identity toward a more integrated space of harmony, I think people can feel it in their bones that something hasn't been going right Mm -hmm. and it's been very, very wrong. And now's an opportunity to actually name it so we can tame it and then move it in an integrative direction. And I am incredibly hopeful that we as a humanity, because we have consciousness and our narratives, because we have this collaborative thing of alloparenting that can tie us together in these deep, deep connected ways of belonging, that we can create a belonging that we have never seen on this planet in recent years. And that is something together we can do. Well, thank you for that, Dan. That is a beautiful thought. And I can't think of a better way to end this episode. So, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. It has been a real pleasure and a privilege to talk with you. And we hope to have a chance to do it sometime again in the future. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Rob. Keep up your great work. Thank you. Thanks again, Dan. A pleasure. A pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Be well. And to find out more about Dan's work and get more information on the Wheel of Awareness and many of the other things that we talked about today, you can go to drdansiegel.com as well as mindsightinstitute.com. So until our next episode, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.